We're in Genesis 39. I see this sort of as a two-part series uh, from last week and this week. Uh, we looked at Judah and Tamar last week, the horrific story of Judah running off into guilt and shame and plunging himself into a spiral of sin that saw him take on the Canaanite uh, worldview and leave, uh, leave behind uh, Yahweh, his God. And we saw that guilt and shame from sin can lead us to even greater sin. This week we are looking at Joseph and his response to being sinned against. So let's read Genesis 39 and we'll look at this passage. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and because and he, he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and filled. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was, a han was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are, you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house, had, house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me, to me, to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you that your word is relevant for us today. I thank you that this story, although happened thousands of years before us, today it still speaks to a current situation in our life, that we have sin in us. And that when we have sin in us, Lord, we will wander from you and plunge ourselves into many dangerous places. Yet your grace covers us and uplifts us Your grace covers a multitude of sin and can put to death the old ways and bring us alive in you. Father, as we compare two brothers and their response to sin, as we think about our own lives and our response to sin, will the gospel be front and center? Will Christ crucified be our foundation? Would Christ resurrected be our hope? Would heaven and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth be what keeps us walking forward and not looking behind? May your spirit speak to us. May we be humbled. May you be exalted. And would we go on fighting sin as your children of the new creation? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I started by asking two questions. How do you respond after you sin? How do you respond after you sin? Whether it's a small sin of the mind or it's turned from your mind to your hands and you've acted out upon this sin. How do you respond? We looked at Judah. He responded in guilt and shame. He ran away from Yahweh. He ran away from his homeland and he put himself in the place of a Canaanite. He practically became a Canaanite. Is that our response to sin? That when we sin, we feel like we are now cut off from God and I need to punish myself and have some time away from Him in order to realize that I need to go back to Him. And we said last week, if we recall, that because of Christ, even in the midst of sin, we can turn to God and confess our sin, for He is righteous and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But this week we look at how we respond to others' sin. It's one thing to respond to the sin in our own heart, but it's another to have the pride in ourselves to want to judge others differently to ourselves. We saw this in the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah goes off and sleeps with a prostitute, but then when he hears that his daughter-in-law has been immoral, he wants to put her to death or brand her with a branding iron. He wants to burn her. How do you respond to sin? Do you expect forgiveness, yet don't give forgiveness? That is what our story 
we'll look at here as we compare Joseph to Judah. These two chapters are really heavily anchored into 37, so we should just recall 37 in case we don't quite remember what happened. We know that in 37, Joseph was treated as the favorite child. He had a multicolored robe, which was probably two colors, uh, which was one more than everyone else's robe. But that meant that he was special to his father. And his brothers were jealous. Maybe it was that Joseph got plenty of time with his father, talking to him about his father's history and the promises of God, and he got to sit at home while they labored in the field. Well, one day when Joseph goes out to help them or to bring them some supplies, they see the opportunity to kill him. And instead of killing him, they sell him because they can make some money. And it is Judah who brings back the robe covered in goat's blood and says to Jacob, identify for me, is this your son's? And when Jacob identifies, it says that he plunged himself into such mourning that no one could comfort him. Well, we see Judah with the mourning of his father and the guilt of his sin run off into the world. And we see Joseph sold into slavery. Judah's life spirals out of control into sin and shame and Joseph has a choice to make. Do I meditate on the bitterness? Do I meditate, meditate on, on the hatred for my brother and become bitter, bitter, brothers and become bitter? Or do I recall the promises that God has made to me before? Remember, one of the major reasons the brothers hated Joseph so much were because of two dreams he had. One where the brothers will bow down to him, another where the stars and the moon will bow down to him. These two dreams that Joseph had, he believed were from God and that one day Joseph was going to be in a position of authority even over his brothers and his father, which is quite, in many ways, humbling for the brothers and the father. Yet nonetheless, this is what Joseph thought about, these two dreams. So as he trudges down the dusty road, bound probably hand and foot, sometimes falling over and the camels dragging him along the ground, what does he meditate on? Does he build up bitterness, hatred? Or does he think about the promise of God, the dreams? Does he think about the moon and the stars bowing down to him? That God will be with him and will bring about his perfect purpose and plan well, we know from the work of Joseph, we know from the story of Joseph that anything can come against him and he continues to put his hands to work. He continues to focus not on who has sinned against him and who has harmed him, but what's coming forward, what's in front of him. He continues to think about the hope that God has for him. Paul Washer once said this, God will strip you at times of everything in your life and leave you with nothing but the knowledge of his character and his attributes. I want you to ponder that because many people don't like it. But I have found this to be true in the scriptures as we read the Psalms, as we look at Joseph and as we think about our own life. That there are times where God strips us of everything. We are utterly weak and all we've got is the knowledge of God his character, his attributes, and his purpose in the long run. So let's get into this story. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and he comes to Potiphar. In verse 1, it gives us a very important status of Potiphar, officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian. 
right? Joseph has come to a foreign land. Now think for a moment about being sold as a slave. Now think about being sold as a slave by your family and how that would make you feel. Once Joseph had freedom and privilege, now he is bound. Joseph, like his brother, enters into a foreign land. He goes to Egypt. He is no longer with the his father Israel. He is no longer a part of the chosen people. He is off in a foreign land, yet he is forced to. Judah chooses to go to a foreign land. Judah becomes humbled by his choices and will one day return home and become a self-giving man, as we see at the end of Genesis. Joseph will experience the providing hand of God through making him low. He will be left with nothing, no reason to carry on, no hope, except for the dreams that he had when he was a boy, except for the hope of a better future. The process of being with God is one that will always lead to you being refined. If you are with God, you are going to be refined by God. He disciplines the one he loves. He wants to put to death the old self in order to bring out Christ in us. If you walk with God, you can guarantee that you are going to put to death your old life. That is everything. We don't come to the Christian faith and hold on to our old life. That is what it means to die to our old self and be born again in Christ. Joseph, Judah are going to put to death their old self. We saw that in Judah's story. We see that in now Joseph's story. You, me, you are going to put to death your old self. That is the process of this life. Christ is going to do it in you as he refines you. And it happens through our own sin as it happened to Judah and it happens through people who sin against us. That is the beauty of being a part of the church. If we are a lone Christian, it's harder for people to sin against us and therefore we are limited in the way that we are sanctified. But when we dwell with people, when we are in community, you will be harmed by other people's sin. Joseph's journey is one that states that he was with God or God was with him. It's a good reminder to ponder that statement, that God is always with his people. Yet at times we wander away from God and close our ears to the Holy Spirit. The New Testament calls it grieving the Holy Spirit. Much like Judah. Judah was always a child of God. He was part of the promised people of God. Even when he's in Canaan, acting like a Canaanite, he is God's child. Yet, he was not listening to God's word. At times in our life, we can feel incredibly alone. We can feel abandoned by God. Yet often it's because of our own wandering. Sometimes, when God is choosing to refine us, it's because he leaves us in the wilderness. And the, the cry of Psalm 42 is a cry that I think every Christian will know in their life. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? This must have been, although this psalm wasn't written, must have been the cry of Joseph's heart at times. We're going to see him go to be a slave. We're going to see him raised to a high position, yet then brought back down to humility as he's arrested and put in prison for something he didn't do. There must have been times where he said, why, my soul, are you so downcast? 
Why are you in turmoil within me? It's helpful as we ponder this story of Joseph that according to the Scriptures, he doesn't get any grand interactions with God like his father Jacob did. He doesn't sit down and lie upon a rock in the land of, Israel, uh, the land of Canaan and God give him a vision of heaven and say, this land that you lie upon will be yours. He doesn't get that. Over the next 10, 13 years, he's about 17 when he's sold. He'll be about 30-ish when he gets the rulership of Egypt. Over the next 13 years, he's pretty much got one or two things. He's got the wisdom that his father taught him and the two dreams that he had when he was a boy. He then gets some dreams from some other men we'll see next week in the story. But Joseph is pretty much alone. He's alone and God is pretty much silent. And he, through eyes fixed upon the promises, eyes fixed upon the stories of Jacob, works hard. Notice the phrase, God made him succeed in his hands. In his hands. This is really important because God is not going to give to the lazy or the idle. He's not going to give to those who have been sinned against and they sit back and go, woe is me, God, you should fix this. I'm just waiting for you to pour out your grace upon me and lift me up out of the bed. No. God puts people to work and if we work and are faithful, God sees it and blesses it. Joseph worked hard. He got into his position as a slave and the first start position as a slave would be he would be broken in. They would want you to feel like a slave. They don't want you to think that you have any privilege or prestige among them. They break them in. They whip them. They treat them harshly. They would be low of low. And Joseph worked hard. Proverbs 10.4 tells us that a slack hand causes poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. God is not going to go against his word and look at the person who is wallowing in self-pity and say, Oh, I'll fix you all up. You do nothing but I will just raise you up. Of course, in the end, God is the one who raises us up and our work is utterly meaningless in His sight. But He, he honours those who put their hand to work. Joseph had every reason to be bitter, every reason to just sit back and go, I don't care about life anymore. Whip me till I die. My, dad ha- my, my brothers sold me. I'm no longer, uh, no, no longer wanting to live. I've been sinned against. Woe is me. Yet this young man works hard. He works hard as he remembers the promises of God through the dream. He puts his hands to work and God sees and God makes Potiphar see. God makes Potiphar see. It says in verse 4, so Joseph found favor in the sight in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put all things in his charge. Down in verse 6 it said he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. This is the position that Joseph has found himself in. He is a slave. He is not an Egyptian. He is a slave. He is a, a Hebrew boy and everyone knows it. But Potiphar, through the wisdom of God, has seen that everything this young boy touches is blessed. So therefore, Potiphar's like, I know, I'm going to raise him to be in charge. And I'm going to prosper because this man is prospering. 
John 3.27 tells us that a person cannot receive even one thing, one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So important to remember that. Why does Potiphar have anything? Because of Joseph. And this comes back to one of the other promises of God in Genesis 12.3, which says a promise to God from... Uh, a promise to Abraham from God, I will bless those who bless you and whom who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise of Genesis 12.3 is following the generations of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now to Joseph, that whoever blesses Joseph will be blessed. Well, Potiphar blesses Joseph by raising him to a high position, giving him authority in his house, and therefore Potiphar is blessed. We should ask, and we don't ever find out, but I wonder what happened to Potiphar and his wife after they dishonoured Joseph and put him in prison. The truth of Genesis 12.3 actually reminds us of the Gospel. It was a promise to Abraham, but it's really a promise to promise about Jesus. Those who bless Jesus will be blessed. Those who dishonour Jesus will be dishonoured. That's a Gospel message right there. You either accept Christ... And you will be accepted. Or you don't accept Christ and you will be cut off and cursed. The gospel is present in the book of Genesis. It follows through the promises of God. The promise that he will deliver his people as he will through Joseph. And of course we will see Joseph is really just a forerunner of Christ. Joseph saves his family from famine, but Jesus will save his people from sin and death. Yet Joseph has been risen to a high point in his life. Well, a high point better than being in a well or in slavery. And now, God's going to snatch it from him all over again. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. End of verse 6, verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and, has put, and he has put everything in that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph and his mother are the only two that get this twofold scription of form and appearance. And with blessing of good looks brings unwanted attention for Joseph. Potiphar's wife lusts over him, casts her eye upon him. This is her husband's slave, so in some ways she thinks she has authority over him. I own you, you can do what you want. Let's remember that this is quite the temptation for Joseph. He's a young man. Maybe some years has passed by. He's early 20s. He's in a foreign land. No one knows. He's in charge of the household. He knows the coming and goings of the household. And she's the instigator. Could he get away with this? We can't just see that Joseph instantly knew the right thing to do. There must have been some sense of temptation for a 20-year-old boy who is, who is struggling in the midst of bitterness and pain and being rejected by his family. He sits back with this temptation heavy upon him. 
Yet Joseph doesn't make excuses for the way he acts. He doesn't use his past as a way to say, well, I can do this because this happened to me. Because I was treated so bad as a child, I should get to do this for comfort. Well, the reason I act out is because of my poor childhood, as most psychologists would say today to people. If you didn't have an upbringing like you had, you wouldn't act the way you do. No, you act the way you do because you have sin within you. Joseph, just like all of us, has sexual immorality in his heart. Potiphar's wife has sexual immorality in her heart. Joseph, yet, knows that the eyes of God are watching. What Joseph cares about most is not just honouring his master, Potiphar, but the eyes of God are watching. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph cares about upholding his God. Joseph knows that wherever he is, he is resembling and reflecting and imaging the holiness of God. As we do, as his church. Wherever we are, behind closed doors, in secret, God sees. God knows. Joseph also knows that every sin that he commits is a sin against God, first and foremost. And as David says in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you and you alone. Although, after, when he was writing this, he's actually talking about his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. But he says, I have sinned against you and you alone. What does he mean? Well, first and foremost, every sin is against God. Every sin is a blaspheming of his holiness. Uriah and Bathsheba, yes, were sinned against, but the most important person we have sinned against is God. It is incredibly important to build weight upon our sin, to know how heavy it sits upon God. It's really an important thing for us to understand, how does God view this? How does God view the lust of my eyes, the lying of my lips, the hatred that I hold on to, my unforgiveness that I dwell upon? Whenever anyone comes to me asking about fighting sin, the first thing I say is go forth and read every scripture about that sin in the scripture until you feel the weight that God feels upon you about your sin. Maybe Joseph was warned by his father with the many times he got to sit with his father and hear about forbidden women. Maybe he heard about the trials that he faced between his four wives, his, his sister wives and their concubines, uh, their slaves and who became his concubines. Proverbs 5 tells us, For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Potiphar's wife is enticing to Joseph. We can read this and just read over it like it was an easy thing to just dismiss. But her lips drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. It's a trap. It's a trap for Joseph. And in verse 10 it says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Day after day. 
The temptation of ongoing sin that continues to come day after day. And if it's left unchecked, we see that it will turn to action. Verse 11, but one day, after this Potiphar's wife continues to come at Joseph day after day, one day, her thoughts, her lust, will turn to be an action. When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by, her, by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. We can learn from Potiphar's wife as well that to continue to ponder upon the sin that we want will then lead us to believe that we are entitled to it. And through words come... Uh, through rather through through thoughts become words as it already has for her and then from words become action. She's become so obsessed with Joseph, so desirous of him, so much thought has gone into being with Joseph that she can't help herself but reach out and grab. God said to Cain in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door, it is desirous to master you, you must rule over it. She didn't rule over it. She gave in to it. And it mastered her. To the point where she became entitled. I deserve this young man. I have to have this young man. Joseph, on the other hand, is one who will escape at all cost. Even willing to be humiliated and leaving behind his garment, he runs out of the room and out of the house. This is a good spot for us to pause and ponder our own life. Our thoughts are dangerous. They wear, it is where all sins start. It's where our heart starts to drift from God and His good design and go after things in this world. We may rationalize it saying, oh, it's just natural. Everyone thinks like this. I do this because this happened to me. We may make excuses over and over again in our thought life. But we must be aware that all sin starts with a thought. Just one simple thought. Potiphar's wife, just one moment, gave thought to Joseph. Without cutting that thought off, she continued to ponder him day after day to the point where one day she decides to ask him. And then not long after that, after asking him day after day and him refusing day after day, she reaches out and grabs him. And we may say, well, that's not going to happen to me. But it does. We need to ask, who is your forbidden woman or man? And the simple answer is everyone who is not your spouse. She or he may be the most wonderful person, the most caring, the most amazing wife or husband, or the the most uh, naturally gifted at at, at knowing uh, God and teaching you the Scriptures, but if she is not your spouse or he is not your spouse, she is your forbidden woman or forbidden man. It starts with just an, I wonder. I wonder what my life would be like if I were with her or him. I wish my husband did things like her. Ah, him. I'm confused. (laughs) It's fluid, isn't it? No, it's not. Cut that out. Cut that out. That shouldn't shouldn't be in that sermon. Why? I hate it when you say stupid things. Um, Why isn't my wife like this brother or sister? 
wife or husband. The thought might be innocent at first. It might be just complimenting someone that Satan takes and traps you into the thought. But I can guarantee you that every adultery started by a pondering of, I wonder what they would be like if they were my spouse. Or maybe it's a singleness relationship. I have confidence that I can be alone with this person and not fall into any temptation. Until the I wonder starts. I wonder what they would be like if it was more than just friendship. And so it builds. The word is clear on how we are to respond to the opposite sex. 1 Timothy 5, 1-2 says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. The key line is all purity. We should get that in our minds and meditate what it means to have purity. If there is a thought in your mind, there is not purity. There is staining in your head. And you should abstain from being in that relationship where it is going to help grow that thought. Abstain from being around them in in, in order to see that flourish into something bigger because it's going to dominate you. Your thought will turn to words, your words will turn to action, and your action will be humiliating. The beautiful thing is God will use your actions as he used Judah with Tamar to bring about his grace and his purpose, but through great consequences. I don't believe Judah's life was all that uplifting after what happened with Tamar. It says he never was with her again, and he never had any other children. It sounds to me like he lived a life that was probably pained by the consequences of his sin. Sin does bring consequences. It's that. That's the reality of Scripture. It does bring consequences. And And although we are washed clean by them, we carry the consequences with us. So how do we respond when the thought, I wonder, comes, or it's gone further and the words have started to flow from our mouth? When there's no purity between a brother or sister, uh, an older woman or a younger man, or vice versa, whatever it may be. 1 Corinthians 6.18, or copy Joseph, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. In other words, you can't fight, so run away. You're not strong enough to fight, so run from the thoughts, run from the house, run from your phone, run from the person that's in your presence. The reality of the forbidden man or forbidden woman in our day is Potiphar's wife can always be with us through pornography. And we are called to flee. Temptation will wear you down. I don't believe Joseph could have gone his whole life, day after day, living with Potiphar's wife, being tempted by her. He would either have to remove himself completely from her or he would have fallen into sin. You aren't strong enough. The unmarried couple can't continually spend nights alone in a home and think they are strong. It's not strength, it's foolishness. Foolishness. The married man can't continually entertain thoughts about a woman at work. It's not strength, it's foolishness. 
A married woman can't continually entertain thoughts about a better husband or a husband in, a, a, another husband in the church. It's not strength that you can abstain from acting out your thoughts. It's foolishness. If it's not dealt with, it will destroy you. And don't hear it from me. I'll just read you some scriptures. So, uh, Proverbs 5, 22 and 23. It's speaking from a man's perspective with the forbidden woman, but just swap it around if you're the opposite sex. His own wrongdoing will trap the, tra- trap the wicked, and he will be held by the ropes of his sin. He will die for the lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his foolishness, he will go astray. Proverbs 7, 22 and 23. At once, he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The words of God that remind us of just how dangerous flirting with the idea of the forbidden woman or the forbidden man. Act like Joseph and flee. Flee even if it costs you even if it humiliates you. And even in the midst of doing the right thing, wrong things can be done to us. Even in the midst of standing up and living in holiness, often the world will plunge us into being wicked. We will, as those who work on our holiness and righteousness, will be seen at times as the evil and wicked of the world because we stand not upon the world's standard of morality but on God's standard of morality. And here we see in this rest of this story Joseph goes from being at the heights of his servanthood to plunging down into chains again. As soon as his master heard the words of his wife, verse 19, spoke to, spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. What you believe about God doesn't change when your circumstances do. What you believe about God doesn't get altered as your circumstances get altered. Joseph continues to... Joseph's life, circumstances continue to change, yet he continues to walk in obedience to God. He continues to trust the God who gave him the dreams of promise and the promises to his father. Despite going from the comfort of his father's house to a well, to being a servant, to the ruler of a house, and then plunged into prison, he remains focused on God. You may sin, yet God remains the same. You may be sinned against, yet God remains the same. People change, God doesn't. Your theology, if it is firmly grounded in the Word of God, reveals to us that God does not shift in character or attribute as you shift in your character. God warns us of sin because He hates it and it harms us. Yet when we sin in Christ, we can turn to Him. And when others sin against us, we don't turn to them, we turn to God. We turn to God in Christ and we view them in Christ. 
God alone is the consistent one and He alone is constant. Your circumstances are going to go up and down like Joseph's did. You're going to be at the peak of your life and then plunge down into misery. Yet God is still faithful. God's purposes are the same. God's plans are the same. God's character and attributes are the same. They never change. Joseph is a man who was plunged into absolute despair. He was, he was abandoned by God in many senses. But he continued to work as he thought about the home that God had for him. Isaiah 50, 4-6 tells us this, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, his ear, he awakens my ears to hear those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What the prophet is saying is that his ears have been opened by God. His tongue has been loosened by God. He knows what to say to the weary soul because God every morning awakens him to who God is to his attributes and his characters. And because of this, he can put his back to be striked. He can put his cheek to be, uh, to be slapped and his beard to be pulled out. He doesn't care about being disgraced or spat upon because God is consistent and God is faithful. This is what Joseph has. He has this resolve in his, in his heart and mind that no matter what happens in my life, no matter how far down I get trashed, no matter how low I get spent, I can trust in God who is constant and consistent. I believe God in the heights of my life. And I believe the same God in the valleys and the depths of brokenness. When everyone has turned against me and everyone is sinning against me, I still believe in the same God. Jacob succeeds. Success continues because God is with him. In verse 22 to 23, it says the keeper of the prison saw that everything prospered in, in Joseph's hands. So what's he do? Joseph gets it all again. Imagine being a prisoner in charge of all the other prisoners. Joseph is bound, yet he is free. In Proverbs 21, 21 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Whether it is a king, a ruling uh, a, a, a ruling president or prime minister or simply your boss or any one of us. God can move your heart in a moment. God can make people look upon you with a, in a positive light, light as God has made the prison keeper look upon Joseph. He's seen that Joseph is not sitting in the corner of his prison wallowing about what people have done to him. My brothers rejected me. My brothers sold me. Potiphar's wife lied about me. Potiphar put me in prison. No, he looks upon God. The God who forgives. The God who is consistent. The God who sways the hearts of kings. The God who shows grace and mercy. The God who will uphold justice. Joseph is only a type of Christ. He's a forerunner. He points us to the one who will bear the great weight of sin. 
He bore our guilt and shame. He died for his people. Joseph, as I said at the start, will save his family from famine. Christ will bear the weight of sin for the whole world. His own people didn't accept him, yet he is the one in Isaiah 56 that says, I turn my back to those who strike me and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Christ is the one who sets his eyes upon his father and his father's plan, his father's will, and with joy set before him, endures scorn and suffering in order to bring salvation for his people. Joseph is a good example of what it looks like to be sinned against and continue to be obedient to God who is consistent. But Christ is the ultimate example. The one who took on sin with joy. Maturity in faith is bearing weight while maintaining joy. Maturity in faith is being able to bear the weight of your sin, the weight of others' sins against you, and maintaining joy. And the reason you can bear that weight is because your eyes are not on you or your circumstances, but they are on God and His promises. You may not prosper in this life. You may be the lowest of low as Christ became the lowest of low. He was crucified as a criminal, naked, hanging on a cross. That was his end, of course, then he resurrected. But we will resurrect as well. Which means our life in this time may be absolutely miserable. And we may be left naked and ashamed. We may be left broken down, sinned against, treated harshly. Yet we set our eyes on Christ and keep walking forward. What happens today to you? Those that sin against you today doesn't have to affect tomorrow because they have been forgiven as you have the same weight that Christ has forgiven. You both have equal sin. Everyone in this room has equal sin. If we put everyone on a scale and said, who's the worst sinner? Well, the scale will just break. We all are. Therefore, we have no right to not forgive. Joseph has his brothers come towards him and he toys with them for a bit. But every time he does, he breaks down in tears. We're going to look at this towards the end of Genesis. He's just so humbled at the presence of his brothers that when the moon and the stars bound down to him, when he's ruling Egypt, he doesn't hold it over him. He sobs and they are welcomed in. When we come to Christ, we are welcomed in. When a brother or sister comes to you after they have sinned, they are welcomed in. There is no, no rejection of them. Let's pray. Holy Father, your... Your attributes are perfect. Your ways are perfect. Your character is uplifting and encouraging, Lord, as we ponder your holy goodness, your holy wrath, your holy justice, your holy love. 
Everything about you is set apart. There is nothing that you are that is not unique in and of itself. For you alone are uncreated. Lord, today we feel the weight of our sin. Today we, will, we know that we will sin tomorrow. And we'll be sinned against. But none more than you have been sinned against. You, Lord, have been sinned against in the greatest way possible. And Lord, we pray that as we look to you and see the weight of our sin against you, may we not hold it against one another. May we be like Christ, who looks to his Father's will and walks to be humiliated at the end of his life only to be resurrected in glory. Lord, if it is that we will be humiliated in this life, may we hold on to the resurrection, the hope of a new life in the new heavens and the new earth, where we all know you and know you well, and we do not sin or sin against one another. We look forward to it, Lord. We long for it. May our eyes be set upon it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.